0: This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 21 of Equestrian Legends, presented by Pessoa. and welcome to the programme. My guest this week is New Zealander Jennifer Miller. But first, a message from our sponsors. (music) The name Pessoa is legendary in equestrian circles. During his phenomenally successful career as a rider, Nelson Pessoa set his sights on creating the ultimate in saddle design. Not satisfied with the perfection of balance, aesthetics and craftsmanship, Nelson's goal was to provide riders of every level the opportunity to train and compete in a true competition-level saddle, a saddle that would be an aid to their balance and riding style, while offering a comfortable fit for most any horse. Most importantly, Nelson felt that the saddle was a tool that riders should not miss out on because of price. With these goals, the modern-day Pessoa was born and has come to encompass saddles, strap goods, horse boots and blankets. You can find out more about all of these products by visiting the website at PessoaUSA.com. Jennifer Miller was born on November 25, 1935, in Christchurch, New Zealand, the older of six children, to Ian and Eunice Cloudsley. She began her career with horses in the pony club, then competed in dressage, show jumping and hunter jumpers, and also fox hunted for many years. Her adult life has been devoted to officiating in equestrian sport, including as an instructor and team trainer for New Zealand's Young Riders eventing teams and chef to keep of the senior team. She has been course designer and technical delegate for numerous events around the world and stewarded at Olympic Games in all disciplines. For 10 years, she was the organizer and course designer for Telpo 3-day event. Jennifer was director of Olympic Solidarity Development Assistance courses for technical delegates and course designers between 2004 to 2011 she served as President, Vice-President and Chairman on the Equestrian Sport New Zealand National Board. Jennifer was a member of the FEI Eventing Committee from 1994 to 1998 and also served as its Deputy Chairman. In 1998, Jennifer was awarded Companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit by the Queen for services to equestrian sport both in New Zealand and internationally. In 2001, she was recognised by the International Olympic Committee with a diploma for her contribution as a volunteer to the development of sport and olympicism and to the promotion of friendship and solidarity among peoples. Jennifer and her husband Bruce, who have two children, Deborah and Wendy, live in Tepuki, Bay of Plenty, New Zealand, where she continues to support equestrianism at all levels. Well, Jennifer, horses have been very kind to you and uh, given you a most wonderful career, haven't they? They
1: certainly have. The, uh, the love of the horse has taken me all around the world.
0: It has, hasn't it? And officiating at you know the best events in the world, I mean, not only have you got to travel, but to watch the sport evolve over the years must have been very satisfying.
1: Yes, it was, and I think... I go back to my roots, where I I was really just a a pony clubber that didn't have, had the odd horse or two, and then I began working um, in some of these developing countries, and I could relate to these people that didn't have the great opportunities that some of the um, riders have now. Um, I've had fantastic time working in the developing countries but maybe you want to talk about that later.
0: Right. Well let's go back to the beginning then Jennifer because you're a New Zealander through and through, a true Kiwi, born in in Christchurch in 1935. What was childhood like for you?
1: Childhood, I came from a big family. There were six of us in the family. My grandfather uh, was very uh, much in our family. He was a coach driver in the old days, and I uh, and Co. And I think that's where my love of horses came from. He used to sit on, I used to sit on his knee, and he'd tell me all about the horses and how they galloped and, they, and the brakes gave out, and he had to whip the horses along. and, and it, it, it was just a, a wonderful, uh, wonderful stories he used to tell us. But I lived in a city, and it was very difficult to have horses in a city. But as I became, when I was about 12 or 13, I was given an old trotter, if you can believe it. And I thought I was made. And from there, I went on and I rode a lot of horses and had horses in sections in town and then went from there. So, you know, Pony Club had a big influence in my life, as it does in many um, horse people's lives in New Zealand. Because New Zealand Pony Club is very, very strong. And so I really started with Pony Club.
0: And you, you said you come from a large family, of course, one of uh, six, uh, lots of brothers there. Anyone else in the family interested in horses, or, or was it just you?
1: It was just me, and I had five younger brothers. No, I was the only one. I used to bring my odd brothers, well, some of my brothers, if they chose, and they'd come with me and they'd groom for me at a show or whatever, but that's about as much interest they had in the horses.
0: So what was your parents' reaction to you wanting to go off with horses as a small girl?
1: My parents supported me, absolutely supported me. They thought I was quite mad because I used to go and uh, work and do a bit of ironing for neighbours and what have you and get enough money to pay for a bit of feed for the horses. I mean, this is probably hard to believe, but it was tough in those days. You know, we were young, and there wasn't a lot of money about in those days, and and we weren't on a farm. And it, it it if you wanted to do something, and you were interested in a sport, you really had to work for it. And I think that's what made it so. Um, that's when I look back and think, well, I had I didn't have the opportunities, but I've made the opportunities, and I've worked very hard to make them.
0: Well, of course, Christchurch being in the South Island is not quite as horsey as it is in the North Island, is it? Well, there's not
1: as many horses, but Christchurch, is. they have their own equestrian centre, and those days they didn't. But we had a very strong pony club, and showing showing and pony club and um, show jumping and hunter jumping, as you call it, hunter jumping, we call it round the ring, was very much what we did in those days. Remember... FEI as we used to call it jumping was just starting then and also eventing we just did it at Pony Club but it was nothing like we've got now and with the show jumping we had a Hungarian trainer came out and showed us what these coloured rails were all about and we went to courses with, it was Coleman Bolger from Hungary and we learned all about show jumping there so we had an overall uh, picture of the of many disciplines, but nothing, we never concentrated on any particular
0: discipline. And because it would be a while before New Zealand produced any really, uh, you know, memorable names and superstars in any of the FEI disciplines. So who would have been your role models then in the sport, Jennifer, when you were very young?
1: My role model, I really think I looked up to the president of the equestrian sport. I thought, what a you know what a wonderful man um <coughs> Mr Rutherford he was excuse me a minute um, <coughs> he started the he started um the horse society, as we call it now, and that's the basis of where we are today, you know, and I looked up to him and and really um thought, you know I really can't talk to this man, he's just so high up in this business, you know, mm-hmm. but he he helped the sport in New Zealand initially.
0: Now, what about um, the competitors, though, with uh, show jumping and eventing? Of course, eventing was really yet to take off in any serious way in in your part of the world, but show jumpers, of course, you'd be watching, the reading magazines and, and watching what you could. Were there any riders that you aspired to? Did you have a competitive streak yourself?
1: I did, but I, I did have a competitive streak, but only at national level because I never had the opportunity to have very good horses, and I rode for a dealer a lot of the time, and the, when when the horses were ready, they were sold. So I never had any aspirations that I would ever be a great rider. I was just a run-of-the-mill rider, but I loved the sport. But we looked at uh, when they first sent a team to Japan... Uh, the jumpers. I, I thought this was absolutely fantastic. But we're going back in the fifties then, and it was just starting the fact that you could actually travel horses. Um, so that was jumping, and show jumping was very strong in those days. As we came through, and eventing didn't come through till later.
0: Right, right, and of course, New Zealand is often considered, you know, such a rural environment for people growing up where they can ride their ponies to school and that sort of thing we often hear those kind of stories D- did you ride your pony to school
1: no i didn't but i have but but i have to say that when when i got married and we're going on and we're jumping um 20 years uh when i got married i came onto a farm and we've been farming for 50 odd years and of course my family my children had all those opportunities they didn't ride to school but they had every opportunity with their horses um, and, and we all hunted my husband's a horse person too he'll tell you that he he went to shows before I did because he was on a farm right. <laughs> and he, he, he had those opportunities
0: Right. so, so that, we all
1: gone
0: well that was a shared interest then the horses a, a, that's
1: how I met my husband through the shows. And um, and we had a shared interest, which is he has been a terrific support for my whole whole of my married life, really. And he's been interested too because he's helped build cross country fences. I mean, he's been fully involved. So I've been very fortunate, really.
0: Now going back to those early days, Jennifer, when you were growing up, it was you know obviously wartime. It was World War One go going, World War Two rather going on at that time. Was there any no, uh, fallout effect on your family? Were you, was anyone involved either remotely with that effort?
1: No, no, not really. My father wasn't allowed to go to the war because he had flat feet, so he was home um, helping to support the family. So I, I had no uh, no connection with... Uh, we just knew that we had ration cards and we had to be careful with what, what we spent because of the the rationing. And that's what I remember, going to the grocers with rationing cards.
0: And do you remember some of the produce that you got with those ration cards? Was there the yes. concentrated orange juice and things like that? Yeah, and butter. And butter. You were you were
1: cut off a bit of butter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm 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 ageing myself when I talk about that. But as a child, I can remember very well going across to the grocers and getting half a pound of butter with a, a coupon.
0: <laughs> yes, and of course, meat yeah. was in rations too, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was. Yes, no, it was a very different
1: childhood from what our family our children had, and also what 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 is now you
0: know what would be your fond memories then of growing up during that period you know whilst you were still at school? My memory was
1: my best memory was being given a bicycle and and I had a big kerosene tin, and I used to put all the feed for the horse on the, in the tin and put it on the handlebars, and I had a bike, and I didn't have to walk to the paddock to feed the horse. And my first bike was my, when I think about it, I haven't thought about it for a long time, but getting a bike made so much easier for me with, uh, with my horse, horse riding. It really did.
0: And now what about school? Jennifer, you went to Christchurch Girls High School, but was that something that you enjoyed doing? Were you were a good scholar?
1: Yes, I was a good scholar, and I stayed at school until um, university entrance, and then I decided to get a job so I could carry on with the horses, to be honest. I never went to university. Um, I wanted to ride my horses, and so I had a really good education. I got my school certificate and did what I had to do, and it's held me in good stead for for the administration side of of what I did because I, then I went on to work and I worked in, in, in insurance and then in um, IRD, which is the Inland Revenue and so I had good jobs that supported my love of the horse.
0: Of course, that would have been all too important. I'm sure your parents were encouraging you to be self-funded at that time if you were going to enjoy your horses as well. Very much so. Yeah that very much was, so. that was very much uh, of that generation wasn't it Yes it was Yeah so what sort of values would they have taught you that you have passed on to your children Jennifer
1: Well we are very uh, we've been told we were told when we were young be honest always be honest never be cr- be cruel to people because they'll come, it'll come back to and you won't like it and I've always had this I can go to bed at night knowing that I've done the best I can for any anything I've been involved in with the sport and, and in my lifetime. I I think that's the biggest thing was honesty um, and it, it it has held me in good stead right through.
0: Now you mentioned horses, obviously were your priority then that you you wanted to give up everything so you could focus on your horses what did that look like for you at that age Jennifer what type of horses were you riding
1: right I had in in those days we were, we just didn't have horses that just did jumping I we rode um we we got on our horse and we went to the shows now the shows are like your shows where you have um um around the ring and I call it Ponzi stuff now but we did it and you, your best hack or best rider or whatever. And then we also jumped at the same horse at the show. But to get to the show, we would have ridden 30 k's to the show. And we'd do a circuit of shows and we'd um, compete at the shows. And I had some nice thoroughbred horses and I had some nice ponies. And I, only usually at one at a time. And we compete, and then we leave our horses with friends, and then the next Friday we go on to the next show, and so we did a whole circuit. But our horses were so fit because we rode them everywhere. We, at that stage earlier on, about when we were about seventeen or eighteen, we didn't think of taking um, horse trucks or horse floats to shows. It was only later we did that.
0: Now, where did the crossroads come uh, when you turned left or right or decided which yes. direction you were going to go into and uh, eventing yes. was a focus for you? How did that come about?
1: Well, it came about really after I was married. Uh, first of all, the whole, we all, <coughs> excuse me, we all hunted. So up here, I'm in the North Island now and I'm near Rotorua, which is one of the, um, uh, I, I guess, people that come to New Zealand have to go to Rotorua to see all the sulphur and smelly stuff but I live near Rotorua and I live near the coast and when we came to live in, live here the children had ponies and they were about oh, 5 or 6 and my eldest daughter she was very very keen on the on the horses and we all went to pony club we all hunted and then at Pony Club, I got really interested in the eventing side of it because, first of all, they said, well, can you build some cross-country jumps? So I, I thought about this, and I well, yes, I think I can. So my husband and I, in the very early 80s, we went off to England and went to Wiley, and that had a big, big influence on my thoughts about course designing. And we did a lot of travelling, and I specifically was looking at cross-country because I thought, I love this, I can do this. So anyway, I, w- I started at pony club level building cross-country and designing and building cross-country. Bruce, Bruce, my husband, would help me. And that's how we really started with the um, with eventing. And so as an instructor at pony club, I had to teach the children um, about cross-country as well as jumping. And so I used to go to courses for um, that were held by trainers and we'd, we'd learn about um, how to ride cross-country, how to ride jumping, etc. And so it was really th- through Pony Club, when the children were young, and I'm talking about 40 years ago, that we, that my interest in eventing really started.
0: Which Pony Clubs were you most involved with, and, and also the one that you started with uh, near Christ, Christchurch when you were younger.
1: When when I was in Christchurch I belonged to the Rickers and Fennelton Pony Club, which is still going actually. And and then up here in in uh, in the North Island I'm involved with I was involved with um, a little place called M um, and it's just in the Western Bay of Plenty and we had T Pukki and we had Matata Pony Clubs and they're all in a little group here. So I was very involved with um, with this this area of Pioneer
0: Club and the Bio Plenty. And that, of course, involves some administration as well. You got into administrative side of the sport as well, Jennifer. and you, Maybe your your training and your early jobs might have helped you, as you said, with the administration. What was the appeal to you to to go that way in the sport? Because you had so many choices with the sport evolving in New Zealand at that time yes
1: well i think what happened what happened it 's like everything else there's not a lot of volunteers that um are prepared to put their hand up and I know I first started as a scorer and, and then as a secretary and, and at pony club level and then you'd go out and you'd design the cross country as well and so there was a group a group that um at pony club level and we just did everything, and that 's how it started you I became a jump judge or whatever. You just, uh, just did everything because we, we were just small groups, you know, that um, put our hand up and, and said, yes, we'll be a jump judge or, yes, I'll be the treasurer or something like that. But so that's how I started with administration, really started with the pony club.
0: Well, of course, when you start to, you know, get involved with that side of the sport, uh, you know, you need courses to go on. As you said, you went to England and got some experience at Wiley. But did that mean that you got involved with developing courses to, for educating and training people in course designing and technical uh, delegate work and, you know, the FEI responsibilities of officiating that uh, you were so involved with?
1: Well, initially it was nationally. I used to um, take courses around New Zealand um, under the auspices of Equestrian Sport New Zealand because by then we were with uh, more or less coming out of Pony Club into Horse Society or the Federation. And so I, I, I was um, the rules officer and uh, the planning officer for um, New Zealand eventing. And so my job initially was to go around New Zealand and take courses um, on rules or um, course designing or technical delegate work or whatever. And so that's where I first started. It was nationally I started before I became involved with the FEI doing um, all these courses.
0: Was that a natural progression then for you, Jennifer, or was there peer pressure on you to become an international judge and designer?
1: No, there was no peer pressure whatsoever whatsoever. I was involved at our equestrian centre at Taupo, and we only ran national classes. And I said to um, the, the the group, "I think we can run a, a, an international cl- class here." But what are they? More or less, they said, what, "What's what's it involved?" You know, and and so I was involved in running the first first ever CCI in New Zealand, and that was at our Taupo Equestrian Centre. And so I had to become a a course designer, international course designer. And, which I did, and I was then able to be the course designer for that particular um, site, and so I was the first course designer for a long time, and then we gradually brought more people in, and also the technical delegate. Same thing; they had to go to courses. Um, I think we went to a course in um, on the state somewhere initially, so we can get our ticket to be a course designer and a TD.
0: Well you were a pioneer really at that time with the sport just beginning to see the light in New Zealand and you as you mentioned you were at Taupo 10 years there as the organiser and course designer. Course designing then was a little bit different. What did you see as your challenges then when you were beginning to become recognised as a course designer nationally and then internationally?
1: Well initially when we it, it progressed, at Taupo particularly, where where we ran, ran our CCIs, it progressed over the years, and when we look back, and we I look back and I think, my gosh, some of those jumps were pretty big. We asked a lot of questions, and I look back, but, and we didn't seem to have the accidents. I don't recall ever having a serious accident, but we asked big questions, and we had lighter timber, and our riders were came a lot from farms and they rode over the hills or they came through the sport riding on a sheepskin round the hills and they had stickability and, and you put anything in front of them and they'd say, yes, we can do that. Because I know at Taupo, initially before um, the Olympics at, um, in LA, we had Mark Todd, he, we, we had to get them qualified and, and we had courses there and and our... Um, FEI uh, chair at the time, um, Count Gravier, came to New Zealand to OK the course so that it was up to standard because we had really no standards in this country. And he came and he, and he approved the standard and then the, those horses were able to qualify for, um, well, initially L.A.,
0: well you obviously got very busy very quickly didn't you <laughs> <laughs> yes, <I> did. <laughs> <laughs> once you started doing that and you were designing tracks around uh, New Zealand but also you ventured overseas uh, pretty soon you know doing the the ones in South America of course Brazil Uruguay Argentina to name a few as a course designer and you would have seen those course designs evolving, Jennifer? What do you think were the biggest changes and influences in your pattern of designing over those years? I think safety.
1: I really think safety was a big issue because a lot of countries, well for example in India it, it, which is quite interesting I have, I've had three trips to India and that was really my first time going over with Olympic Solidarity to um, help the Indians, to try and get a standard there because they only had national trials. And and it was an interesting country because it was all army, and I worked with the army. And if an officer told a, 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 a rider to jump something, they had to jump it regardless of whether it was safe or not. And so when I went there, I mean, I was amazed at some of the jumps that they built. I thought, these are impossible to jump. And what we had to do was... Go through the rule book and say you cannot have these kind of fences, huge oxes with big drops, and they were expected to jump them without falling off, and and things that were just not what I consider safe. So I I really enjoyed my job with developing those sports in these countries, and and India was a real challenge because you built they built the cross country, we get it up to what I thought was safe and at one-star level. And then at night, they'd take all the jumps away and store them because all the locals would have gone and pulled all the jumps and used them for firewood. So um, we had certainly had some big challenges with Olympic Solidarity.
0: Well, you were obviously, as I said, very involved internationally then, not just as a designer, but as a technical delegate. Uh, you attended competitions literally all over the world, didn't you? I mean, the highest level. Yes, I level. did. You were the first woman to be appointed as TD for an Olympic Games in, in Sydney. That, that must have been fun in your backyard.
1: Yes, it was It was an amazing to be appointed there. I mean, I was very humbled to think that they could do that. I think they sent me to Burley, and uh, I think the FEI committee sent me to Burley as a TD there uh, at the four-star at Burley. And I think they, unbeknown to me, they were testing me to see if I could cope with Sydney. And I came through OK, obviously, because then I was asked to do Sydney. And I think that... Would be the highest honour of my career, to be honest, because as you said, I was the first woman, and I think I am still the first woman to be appointed as a technical delegate for Olympics, and also the first Australasian, because everything was in Europe or in the States then. It was not, um, not down here, not in the bottom of the world. <laughs> <laughs> and you were, you, you know about Sydney because I know you're involved there with yes. your broadcasting, what have you. But Sydney was uh, an amazing uh, Olympics. I started there three years leading up to the Games, and when I first did my first visit, I got there, I think it was just after the, la- the Games before, about four years before, and had a look at the proposed site, and I couldn't believe it could be an Olympic site. Yes. It was just a huge, big rubbish dump. And I think um, I was so lucky to be working with the course designer, Mike Etherington-Smith, and we worked with Green Australia, and we, you know, they they wanted all the, they planted 35,000 trees on the site. And we had all these people working with us to make sure that these games were going to be good games. And so I enjoyed the challenge. I was very fortunate that, you know, we we're an English speaking country. I think that helped. And I was able to have eight people, um, international technical officials, to come. At the event and help because in those days there was only one technical delegate. I never had any assistant technical delegates. And we had two tracks we had one for the teams and one for the uh, individuals. And it was a huge job. And I think after Sydney, I said to them, said to the FBI, you know, you will have to have assistance like assistant TDs because this is a huge job when you have two tracks of course the sport's changed now but in those days there was roads and tracks a chase and two, two tracks, one team and one individual for the cross country, so it was a big job
0: And also, Jennifer, when you were obviously right in the thick of the sport, it was also evolving as not only a national but an international sport uh, in New Zealand. And you were getting recognition by riders, obviously, such as Mark Todd and, and then Vaughan Jeffrey, Blythe Tate and Andrew Nicholson, Andrew Benny, and on it goes it was a very interesting time for you to watch the athletes themselves get international recognition, as well as what you were doing for the sport back nationally at home.
1: Yes, it was, and it was so exciting, because in '84, when we went to LA for the Olympics, there was only no more than half a dozen New Zealanders there. And that just shows you, at that time, people didn't realise that we can do it. And we had that team in in L.A. and my husband and I went and the whole thing was different then. I mean, you weren't allowed to walk the cross country in Los Angeles until the six o'clock in the morning of the cross country. And I mean, I went there because I wanted to see what the Americans were building for cross country. So it gave us an idea of what was happening in the world. And and so, you know, it's not that long ago that there wasn't that many people that knew about eventing and that our riders were going to become uh, people that were going to be recognised as some of the best in the world.
0: And they certainly were right there in L.A., launched onto the world stage and never looked back in the development of the sport for New Zealand.
1: That's true. And then, of course, that rubs off on what happens in your own country because every every child wanted to be a Mark Todd. And, of course, a venting boom from there on. And we had a lot more um, events here, a lot more horse trials, and we had more international classes. And when I say international, you see, we ran under international rules. over were FEIs, CCIs, or whatever. But we don't have the huge population here. And so you'd be building tracks for maybe 10 or 20 riders at te- at three-star level. But we've continued doing that, and I think that's what has happened now as we do that. And then the ne- when they do the three star here, the next thing they're off to England or they're off to the States or they're off to Australia because they want to go where there's more competition. But it's been a huge, it's been a very good grounding for riders when they've gone overseas, they've seen the tracks here, and they don't get phased by seeing tracks elsewhere because they know they've jumped tracks similar at home here.
0: So that really meant that you had to up your game and keep abreast of the international development of the sport to bring yes, those challenges back home. Yes, I did.
1: And we travelled continuously. Um, we, we were dairy farmers, and in the winter from about May or June, July, um, we I think we went to Europe every year for about 10 years. And we used to have a little camper van, and the English people and all our friends would laugh at us, but we just went from... Um, event to event all around Europe and England, and we did that for, it must be the best part of 10 years, and we kept up with, I was lucky because my husband was so interested too, and we kept up with uh, what was going on in the sport. So we had a very good idea of, um, if we come back to New Zealand, this is the kind of thing you'll see in Europe and, and uh, in the States and in, and in England.
0: Well, you've mentioned Bruce, of course. He's been by your side and is so well known as as part of the partnership. Literally, wherever you were, wherever Jennifer was, Bruce would be right there supporting you. So let's rewind all the way back, Jennifer, to when you actually met your husband. You said it was through horses. How did it come about?
1: I was at a show competing, and I've always been friends with a group that lived lived where he was, and... Um, he happened to be at the show, and he said, "Would you like to come to the dance tonight?" We always had a show after the dance, and that's how it all started. And so we—it we, we, wasn't long before we were actually engaged. It was, I think, six months because I knew him through a group of friends. And so, um, yeah, it was—it just it was great. Yep, yeah, it just happened.
0: Well, that sounded seamless, Jennifer. But tell us about the proposal. Oh my goodness. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Bruce would say I proposed to him but that's not quite right <laughs> no he, no he said no I, I think I, you know I, I can't remember the proposal I, I know that I can remember going with him to buy the engagement ring it was um, oh I was, it was so exciting in those days everyone got married and 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 it was so exciting to get engaged, and then you'd be engaged for so many months, and then you get married, and it was it was just the biggest thing. A little bit different in these days.
0: What but, year was um, that, Jennifer? Um, in 19, uh,
1: 1959, right. 1960, we got married. Yeah. So yeah. W-
0: were you married in Christchurch?
1: Yes, we were. Yes, and we immediately. Um, when I think about it, leaving my family like that, I'd always lived at home and. We were married in 1960 and we got in our little car and we came to the North Island and we were managing a sheep and cattle station for about a year And because we we knew that if we came to the North Island we could make enough money to um, buy a farm and eventually that's what we did. We we went dairy farming and shear milking as they call it for about seven years and bought our own farm.
0: Well, in between time, was there an opportunity to have a honeymoon anywhere?
1: Oh, yes, we went to Mount Maunganui for a few days and then we went to work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was the nature of things those days, wasn't it? Just yes, it was. Just get back yes, to was. earning a living. Yeah, and uh, uh, earning a living off the land, which is so common down there, of course. So you settled in the, the North Island into married life and had two children, two girls. Now, did you encourage them to ride?
1: I didn't need to. We had horses here, and, and the eldest girl was so keen. And I remember we were milking one morning, and she was four. She hadn't gone to school, and we got this little pony on the farm. And she'd gone and put the bridle on and she'd come to the gate of the cow shed and I nearly had a fit because here she was bareback on this pony and she could hardly ride. And so she, it just was ingrained into them. I mean, they just loved the horses. And um, so we. And from then on, we did encourage them. And once we bought our own farm and we were able to, you know, we had our um, trucks and what have you, and the four of us would all go off hunting or whatever, a pony club or whatever we do. And um, and so it was just part of life, and it it, it was for the, for for almost um, oh twenty thirty years we bred horses and um, and we we all rode, and it was just part of our life. It was wonderful. Do you still ride? No, I don't ride now, and I haven't ridden for about ten years. I had a little bit of an accident, and I hurt my back. So that's really what turned me into going into more administration side of it.
0: Well, you certainly devoted a lot to the administration of the sport. You mentioned earlier that you were director of the Olympic Solidarity Development um, for technical delegates and course designers, and that involved a lot of travelling too, and you were also... The FEI development officer for eventing in Asia. So a lot of really committing yourself to developing the sport in a good and positive way in some of those far-reaching countries, Jennifer. That must have been a huge challenge, really, when you saw what had happened with when could happen in New Zealand that you could potentially influence, you know, the rising of the the tide mark, if you will, in other countries.
1: I think it's been—it has been a challenge, but oh, so rewarding. I mean, I think about when I first went to South Africa, and that was later because I—you I, know—I'd been to India and uh, Thailand and Malaysia and Hong Kong, Chile and Uruguay, Argentina, and all those other countries. And the last time that I worked with, uh, when I went in initially to a country was South Africa. At that stage, they hadn't had any international uh, events. But I went in as um, I, I did a seminar there and also as a TD and helping with them. And I, I worked there several years. Um, I had th- uh, several tri- trips there. And they were like sponges, the South Africans, because they were horse people. And all they wanted to do was learn. And I think my greatest joy was to see them at WEG, at um, WEG in the, in the States. They rushed up to me and said, you said we could do it, and we've done it. And I think that was absolutely fantastic. For me, that was a, a rich reward for all the work that went in.
0: Absolutely. It it certainly was. Well, of all the countries that you've officiated in, you've watched the sport grow over the years. Do you have any favorite venues, Jennifer?
1: Oh, well, I, I know you, you you live in the States, but I've always said Kentucky was my favorite uh, event where I TD'd. I just loved the way the people worked, the friendliness. um, And Janie Atkinson, who was the director then, um, I I just thought it was just the most... I dreamed about Kentucky. I remember when they had the first World Games there in the 70s, and we were busy farming with our head down, and we couldn't—we didn't even think we, we, of going. And a friend went, and I felt so jealous, and I said, oh, I just would love to go to Kentucky Park. But anyway, I got there, and I, it was everything I thought it was. And I think it still is my favorite place.
0: Well, and you officiated there, what, four times? In your- yes, I did, and I also ran a seminar there
1: mm-hmm. um, for um, international course designers and CD's.
0: So when you look back on your career now as you, you know, settle down a little bit, not doing so much travelling internationally, if you review what you've done, what you've achieved, what are you most proud of, Jennifer? I mean, I know you you referred to, you know, obviously influencing the sport in the developing nations, but if you have to tell your grandchildren a story, what would it be? I think... I think
1: if you want to do something, you can do it. I, I just say to I, I say to my grandchildren now, there's no such word as can't, there is no such word, and there's no such word as being bored. And I say to my grandchildren, when I was young, I wanted to do this, and it wasn't easy, and I did it. And you have to accept that there's good and bad. I mean, when I think of some of the um, places I've been to and worked in the Olympic solidarity with developing countries, some people wouldn't do it, and I know at the time, when I was working in India, and just, I'm sure you'd just love to hear this little story, but um, I was working in an army base, and um, it was at Merritt, where the Indian Indians and English used to, well, they had the big fights there. But they put me up in the officer's quarters, and I was a woman, so they put an armed guard at the door, and in this uh, quarters was wonderful long red velvet curtains they were 20 foot high and it must have been fantastic in the days of the Raj but they gave me a sheet and one blanket and it wasn't too clean I had mice running over me and the first night the shower and the loo weren't working properly so in the morning they bought me a great big bucket of water and I used a dipper to wash my hair on a concrete floor and There was cockroaches everywhere, and when I went to the loo at night, I had to put my gumboots on. So I can remember in the morning saying, this is where the FEI has sent me to work. (laughs) 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 uh, You know, you've got to be a certain kind of person, because some people can't handle that kind of thing, but, um, you know, India... They just don't have loo's. And I remember at the event saying, you know, when you're technical delegate, you go in the gate and you say, now the first thing that people want to get out is get out of their truck and go to the loo or the bathroom or whatever you call it. And I said to the uh, people that were running, and I said, well, where are the toilets? Oh, they looked at me and I said, well, you've got to have one. So anyway, they put a tent up and they dug a hole in the ground and they put my name on the outside of the tent and a dressing table and a mirror. Inside the tent with a brush and a comb, and that was my loo. <laughs> so you know, working in those developing countries is so different from working at the higher level. But I would never, I'd never say I'd, I think I'd do it again. I think it was absolutely fantastic.
0: Yes, yeah, very. Uh... Very uh, sort of character-developing too, isn't it, Jennifer? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the other sort of side advantages to doing what you've been doing for so long and in so many countries is being part of that sort of family, a wonderful sort of camaraderie in the horse world and meeting so many people, Jennifer, that, that those must be the memories that you sit with each day.
1: They are memories, but luckily they're still, I'm still very friendly with a lot of those people that I've worked with. And in fact, we've just had um, this weekend, we've just had Catherine Narinda, the manager of the Olympic Department here, and Giuseppe Dalla Casa, the um, chair of eventing. And they've been here this week weekend for a seminar. And, I mean, it's just like coming back, oh, there's my family, you know, because Giuseppe helped at Sydney and he was one of my ITOs. And Catherine, um, I've known for years, ever since I was on the committee, because um, I was on the FBI Adventing Committee for four years, when Catherine was um, secretary and she still is. And so, you know, this is it. They and they always say, and where's Brucey? You know, because they know Bruce. And as you say, he's always there. And so, it's the friends I've made around the world, and we're we're taking off to England shortly because I'm I am working at the Olympics actually, and we're taking off, and I know. The whole thing, the whole reason for going is because I'm going to see so many of my friends that I've made around the world.
0: Yes, that's absolutely marvellous. Well, I have to ask you, of course, when you've watched so many competitors, Jennifer, fly past you, galloping past you or trotting down the centre line or galloping through that victory gallop, there must have been some so many memorable moments. Are there any that really rise to the top? Yes, Definitely.
1: When we were at Seoul, because I was working at Seoul in, in 88, it was Toddy totally going through and winning.
0: Mark Todd. Yeah, yep. and yep. he became the double Olympic yep. champion back-to-back. He did. Yeah, he did. And it was just that it
1: was so, un- I suppose you could say it was unexpected, but to do it again, you know, um, on Charisma, and that, that's the horse that we always think of, Charisma and Mark Todd but that's because we're a bit (laughs) parochial.
0: Well, so much to be proud of with the sport, and you've certainly influenced it for many, many years. Now, life has slowed down a little bit. As you said, you're still involved uh, at national level, back to the grassroots of the sport in your backyard. But you also have time for some other pastimes, don't you? Some trout fishing?
1: Yes, yes, we do. Um, we we do when we can. We haven't done very much of it, but we do. And we take off. And we've got a boat that sits in the shed too long. And we don't use it, but we take off. And we a couple of weeks ago we went off, and we're only 20 minutes from a lake, and had caught some lovely fish and came home again. And we have a motorhome, and we used to always use it for events every weekend, which we do still. But we're able. We've got a little boat that we take with us, and. We're heading off to uh, for a week now and um, we'll do a bit of fishing and a bit of tra- uh, tramping and it, it, we keep very fit, both of us, and, uh, and, and that's just something else we do. I just think, you know, when you get older, every day's a bonus and you've got to do something, and, and we do, and we, we keep ourselves very fit. And, and the big, my big job for the last four years has been um, president and chair of equestrian sport, and that was a huge job. And uh, it was, you know, as a volunteer, of course, but um, I retired in September last year, and that was my last um, um, big, big effort for our national board. But, I, but I'm still involved at, at events, as you, as you say. I, I, I go back to my grassroots now, and I jump judge, or I, they put me on an appeal committee or an ad hoc committee, or, and I'm still an advisor for technical, um, for stewards in, in New Zealand.
0: They know where they can find a, a reliable official for the sport. Now, Jennifer, at the end of the day, when you close your door, what has meant the most to you in your career and how, how would you like to be remembered?
1: I'd like to be remembered as an official. It was very fair. Uh, I always worked for the rider and the horse, always. I used to get a little bit cross for some of the politics that went on in the sport but I used to say to people in the end are you doing this for the the best for the horse and the rider because that's what we're here for so I always think at the end of the day this is what we're doing it for the horse and the rider not for ourselves we want to make it a good sport and a better sport.
0: And you've certainly made your contribution to that Jennifer thank you so much for being my guest this week Thank you I'm Chris Stafford and please join me again next time when we celebrate the life of another equestrian legend. In the meantime, you can support our sponsors by visiting them online at persoausa.com.